taking your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Our reading tonight is verses 1 through 14. We will, we will pray again for the Lord's help. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, now upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture and its preaching, Father, we come before you again asking for help. Father, we are a weak and needy people. Our minds have a restlessness to them. Our bodies have a weakness about them. Father, we have nothing more to claim than the disciples who slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would assist us now. We pray that as the voice of our Master, the Lord Jesus, comes to our ear, that we would be attentive to it, that our hearts would be welcome of it, and gracious God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of God to us and that it would indeed find root in us, in a good heart, made good by you. And we pray that that root would shoot up into a harvest of righteousness to your praise, to your honor, to your glory, as we go forth in the fruitfulness of those who have received the word and planted. Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do. On the Sabbath, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of, of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath? And are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
This is God's word. Well, apparently the Pharisees have no scruples about plotting murder on the Sabbath. Is that not what we learn at the end of this text? That those who are outwardly keeping the Sabbath standards that they themselves have written over the law of God, those who look so clean and white in Sabbath-keeping, inside they are murderers of the King of glory. In tonight's reading, Matthew brings us near to a confrontation between Jesus and Pharisees. It's not our first time. It is our privilege to stand close by, right behind Jesus, students behind the master, and learn. What are we to learn? We are to learn chiefly that the Sabbath day is not about finding all the ways to do nothing. Nor is the Sabbath day about all the ways we prove to one another how rigorous we are and how strict we are and how severe we are. That's not what the day of rest is about. The Sabbath day we are to learn here is about finding ways to worship Jesus Christ and so provide rest for ourselves and for others. Rest in the mercy the Sabbath day provides for the children of God. So the Sabbath is not about carrying around a mirror to keep checking how righteous you are. It is about carrying around a Bible and a songbook and a loaf of bread and a towel and a heart and a body full of adoration for Jesus Christ, the true temple, the true dwelling place where God and man meet. But this is not all we are to learn from our text. We are also to learn by this confrontation with the Pharisees how it is Jesus who gives rest for our souls. Remember what he said to us last Sunday night? He said it, not me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, right after he said that, we come to Matthew 12. And you probably do not need me to remind you that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were not in the original scriptures. So that last come to me and I will give you rest immediately opens upon this confrontation. And so here in the confrontation, We are to see a beautiful example of the easy yoke and light burden of our Lord Jesus Christ. The yoke of the Pharisees is heavy, it is cruel, it is inhumane. The Pharisees use God's law to condemn those who are not guilty. Do you see that in verse 7? They want to control people and promote their own brand of righteousness. So what do they do? They make Sabbath regulations much heavier than God has made them. The Pharisees had created a meticulous list 
of 39 categories of activity which were classified as work and therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. Categories of activity which include transporting an object from one house to another, forbidden. Sewing two stitches, forbidden. Writing two letters, erasing two letters. Anything that resembled reaping or threshing or winnowing or grinding. The Pharisees had turned the life-giving and holy Sabbath day into a bitter iron yoke of self-righteousness. They made it so hard that they were the ones who were always above baseline. Jesus, on the other hand, has a light yoke. He is always able to find the mercy in the application of God's law. What a skill. He is always able to find the good in the application of God's law. He is always able to show how the law of God is attractive and humane. Jesus is an expert in the law. If you try to use the law to justify yourself, it becomes an instrument of cruelty between you and other people because you will always need somebody near you who is failing to be justified by the law so that you can tell yourself you are not failing. But when you use the law to love people, and is, not, is that not the summary of the entire law? To love God and neighbor? When you use the law to love people, to bless people, to relieve people, you use it mercifully, and you are full of mercy. Now, there is another lesson to learn here from Jesus in this confrontation. Beloved, note well how our Lord Jesus answers the cruelty of the Pharisees with his superior knowledge of the scriptures. Verse 3. Have you not read what David did? He's referring to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then he says in verse 5, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? He is referring to many passages there, but especially Numbers 28, 9 and 10, where the priests have to set a fire on the Sabbath day, forbidden, ordinarily. They have to butcher animals on the Sabbath day. And in fact, on the Sabbath, the ceremonial law had them butchering more animals on the Sabbath than other days. Work. Then, in verse 7, our Lord Jesus quotes another scripture, Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, you get the impression, do you not, that Jesus can handle all of the errors of the Pharisees by just bringing out his Bible. That should embolden you. Don't you have a Bible? You can be a great help to those being controlled by false teaching because you have a Bible. But you might not be able to use it well until you let Jesus teach you. Because that's what's happening here. We are to learn that the rule of Christ is found in the scriptures. 
but we need to learn the scriptures from him. That means prayer. That means reading our Lord Jesus Christ, handling the scriptures. It means many good things. The Pharisees always had these same scriptures that he's presenting to them. But they did not use them to teach the Sabbath mercy the way Jesus teaches it. The Pharisees refused to teach the Sabbath mercy. Why? Because something inside them did not want to look at these scriptures. And what was that something? They fundamentally saw their ministry as a ministry of condemnation, not as a ministry of mercy. The religious duties they themselves performed filled up their hearts, not the steadfast love that God poured out on his people. That did not fill up their heart. So they end up doing this most incredible thing, Jesus says. In verse 7, these are the leaders of the church. They condemn the guiltless. That's like being given a brand new car, a 20, well, a $100,000 car, getting into it and driving it out the back of your garage down into a ravine. Certainly not the purpose of a car. They condemn the guiltless. We have not yet, I think, fully reckoned with how deep was the corruption and disorder and perversion of the soul of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. And how that corruption and that perversion was not because they were Jewish men. It's not because they were in Jerusalem. It's because they were sinful men, unregenerate. And that means we can learn from them in the worst way. If we ourselves are outside of Christ, how dangerous it is to try and form and fashion our own religion with Christ outside the center. Well, let's go through this passage then. Those are some of the things we are to learn from it. Let's see now if we can learn them again. The first thing we notice in our text is the accusation of the Pharisees. They observe with their eyes that the disciples of Jesus are plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath day. And from the passage as a whole, it appears the disciples are moving through these grain fields on their way to the synagogue. Because notice in verse 9, immediately after this confrontation, they enter into the synagogue. So perhaps, and some commentators think so, with more confidence than I have, that these Pharisees are out in the grain fields watching. Boy, you really want to be friends with these guys, don't you? They're watching for infractions. They are like, well, they're like the worst teacher on the playground, always stopping the fun, always stopping life. They see this plucking of the grain, and they accuse 
Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And notice their language. Verse 2. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They charge the disciples with reaping and probably also threshing because they have to roll the grain in their hands to separate the meat from the husk so they can eat it. It's a pretty meager breakfast, but it's gotten them in hot water with the church leaders of Jerusalem. But notice how they brought the accusation. They are fixated on what they can see. This is why they are always justifying themselves and never condemning themselves. Visibility is their primary standard of righteousness. Can they see other people doing what they should be doing? And are they themselves being seen doing what they should be doing? That's all that matters to them. But listen to what Jesus will say to these Pharisees later in Matthew 23, after they have long remained hardened and have become murderous. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They are like somebody who is at every worship service. I think that means me. This is heavy stuff. Somebody who is at every worship service, and everybody esteems them, but inside, they're full of vanity, pride, coldness towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. These brothers are at the synagogue, Should we call them brothers? At the synagogue, plotting murder, but keeping the Sabbath, they say. The day of life. Well, how does that, how do those words from our Lord Jesus in Matthew 23 fit into what is happening here? Well, notice again, verse 7. They have condemned the guiltless. They have failed at the most basic level of representation of God. They have condemned the guiltless. Why? Because if they do not see their own outward, whitewashed righteousness hanging on the lives of other people, they judge those other people as guilty. Because the outside is the only standard by which they judge themselves innocent. But on Judgment Day, Jesus will say what he says to them here on this day, you condemned the guiltless. How great will be their guilt then? Now, Jesus goes on to answer their accusation with those Old Testament scriptures I spoke of. First, he brings forward the case of David. The law of Moses had commanded that 12 loaves of bread, the bread of presence, be laid on a golden table in the holy place within the tabernacle. Now, that bread was to remain there. That show bread remained on that table for one whole week. Twelve loaves, two piles of six. It was then to be eaten by the priests only. 
and replaced by another batch of fresh, warm loaves of showbread in the holy place, in the tabernacle. You can read about that in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Well, one day, David, who is fleeing from Saul, this is really as the conflict just is beginning between Saul and David. David, weary, hungry, he comes to Ahimelech, the priest at the tabernacle. And Ahimelech, the priest, only has showbread available for the hungry, the weary, the on-the-run David. David asks for the bread. Now, David, among the Jews, had a very high authority. In fact, on the day that he came to the tabernacle asking for the bread, he was in the royal service to King Saul, the king's emissary. And he was, David, he was the anointed successor to Saul. David comes and receives this bread that was only to be eaten by the priest. And our Lord's point here is to say the necessity of hunger was stretched and pushed and pulled to David's benefit because of the rank of this particular man in Israel. It is not just hunger in the general sense that allows Ahimelech to give the bread to David. It is the necessity of hunger in the particular man, David, because Jesus is building an argument here. He's going to get to the point at the end of his argument where he is saying someone greater than David, someone greater than the priest at the tabernacle, is now in your presence. And so he is pointing out to the Pharisees that a royal son, King David, in prospect, because Saul was still alive, became a recipient of the bread, and he was not guilty. This was recorded in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 21 without any comment by the Holy Spirit that this was a condemnable action. It was not a condemnable action. How wise and skillful is our Lord Jesus with the scriptures? Pharisees would never have reached for that text because they would never have been interested in the mercy therein revealed. Our Lord's second response to their accusation begins in verse 5, and it's a short one. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I briefly mentioned this earlier. On the Sabbath days, the priests are engaged in work killing beasts for sacrifice, setting fires to burn the meat. Two lambs extra were killed on the Sabbath in addition to the daily sacrifice. The point that our Lord Jesus is making here is that service to the temple on the Sabbath day and all the work necessary for that work of piety in the temple by the priest, was considered guiltless, therefore lawful. Now, of course, the Lord is using the word profane in verse 5 to excite the Pharisees. 
to put their language in their ears. Why would the Pharisees never point to the priestly work that took place on the Sabbath to show that there were exceptions of necessity to Sabbath regulations? They would never point to it because they're not interested in showing the mercies of God. Our Lord Jesus has made a point about David, and he has made a point about the work of the priest in the tabernacle. And the reason he has made the point about these two high-ranking offices, the kingship of David and the office of the priest, is so that he can go on and underscore this point that he makes in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Therefore, my disciples, therefore, my church, my body, when they are in service to me, they are guiltless when they pursue good and mercy on the Sabbath. Jesus is not vacating the Sabbath. There's nothing in the New Testament that will allow anyone to say that the Sabbath has been shut down. Jesus is purifying the Sabbath. Just like he cleansed the temple, he is cleansing the Sabbath. And everyone in his service is now doing a work that is even greater than the work the priests did in the tabernacle. Because the temple was simply an image of the real thing. Now, the real thing has come. The living God. John Chrysostom, one of our fathers in the faith, fourth century, said, the faithful now are even more than priests. For the Lord of the temple himself has come to them. And he's speaking of you, beloved. Now, you are not less than priests, as Peter says in his letter, his first epistle. But you are more than priests in that you are sons and daughters of the Most High. Chrysostom, the truth personally has arrived, not merely the image of truth. So so our Lord Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And then look what he says in verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, this is the second time our Lord Jesus has cited Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The first time he cited those same words was back in Matthew 9, verse 13. And he cited them on the occasion of the Pharisees' critique of him for eating dinner with a tax collector named Levi and his friends. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees don't know what that means. It's a scripture they would know. You could cite it to them and they would tell you the address, Hosea 6.6, but they don't know what it means, only where it is. Oh, we have so much Bible reading to do. You know, if one of these Pharisees who are standing here listening to our Lord Jesus in this confrontation is among the elect 
and, and many of them were. We learn that in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. But if one of those were present and they heard Jesus handling the scriptures this way, it would be fitting for that man, as the Spirit works in his heart, to become like a child again and reach out his hand for Jesus and say, I don't know anything. Will you teach me? Will you disciple me? These men who could move back and forward in the scriptures with a facility that we have not seen often in our own culture, they didn't know what the scriptures mean. And so what does it mean? The way the Lord phrases it begs the question, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It means this in the most simple form. If mercy is not a primary feature of your Sabbath keeping, you do not understand the way of God. You do not understand the creation of the Sabbath as a day of rest and why he gave it to us. He gave us a Sabbath day to testify to us that life is his gift to his people. It's the one day of the seven created days that had no morning nor evening in the text of Scripture. Therefore, it is a sign of the everlasting day. But more importantly, a sign of an everlasting day is therefore a sign of everlasting life, eternal life. And eternal life is only acquired by sinful fallen men as a gift of mercy. So right there, built into creation, was a sign of the mercy that would befall us in the gift of eternal life, even before the fall. Mercy has always been at the bedrock of all of God's dealings with men. Sacrifice will be done away. In fact, Jesus Christ is the last sacrifice. He is the last circumcision. He is the last bloodletting. Sacrifice is temporal, but the Pharisees are taking all of their righteousness from their resume of sacrifice keeping. Just like any other person on the earth today who takes all of their righteousness from their resume of religious works. When the Lord is over here saying, everything you need to have me as your God and have my life as your life is a gift of mercy. Come to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, and rest. We could say that our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 8, is actually making the same statement he made at the end of chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is the Lord of rest, the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, not only because he is the one who created it at the very beginning, for he is 
was with God in the beginning. He is the Lord of the Sabbath also because he is the one who has redeemed his creation and brings us into the rest that he has made through his body and blood. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, not just in an authoritative way of teaching what the Sabbath truly means, but in a redemptive manner of giving the rest that the Sabbath has always signified, an eternal life. So now we have heard in these first, first verse, eight verses that the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself as the true rest of man, even more ultimate than the rest that comes from keeping the weekly Sabbath. For that was, is just a sign, isn't it? And yes, today there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and there remains a Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day, the day of resurrection Sunday, it is a sign of him who is our heavenly rest. So he shows us the necessities, or excuse me, the, um, the works of necessity that bring indeed a proper and lawful exception to the Sabbath law. Now in verse 9 through 14, I'm going to move that rather quickly and look at our Lord show us the works of mercy that are to be regarded as also exceptions to the Sabbath law. And as you know, hearing these words, necessity and mercy, mercy, these are encoded in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Look what happens in verse 9 through 14. The Lord Jesus Christ enters the synagogue, and we all see together under the writing of the apostle here, under the writing of Matthew, a man with a withered hand. Now, a man with a withered hand in a synagogue on a Sabbath day is going to stick out. Do you know why? Because there's a point several times in the synagogue service where the men lift up holy hands like this. This is why Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, I do not want men quarreling and fighting and using their fists. I want them to be lifting up holy hands. This is how they would often pray. We pray like this. Neither are wrong. Both are right. But this man's hand would not go up. The Lord recognizes the withered hand, and he turns the question on them. Now he is prosecuting, not defending. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He says, they ask him that question. He says to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not, who will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretches it out, it is healed. And the man on the day of life has his arm returned to life, but not just so that he can go home and wipe the counter and dry the dishes. His hand is returned to life so that he, on the day that is the sign of life, can worship God in the wholeness of a foreshadow of the resurrection life. But here's the key point of these verses 9 through 14. The Lord Jesus Christ deliberately 
goes to do good to the man with the withered hand. This is not an issue of extremity. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's at their last breath. This man has come to many services in that synagogue with his withered hand. But the Lord, with determination, with foresight, determines that on this day, in this space, this synagogue, he will restore life to this man's hand and give him a taste of the everlasting life of the everlasting day. The point of this is stated by our Lord himself right there in verse 12. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Beloved, it is lawful to not only do good by accident, to not only do good when an unusual providence puts you in a situation where you must pull over your car and get out and spend the next hour helping somebody get gas, and so you have to do good then. It is lawful to plan to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to put it on your calendar and say, on this Sunday, we are going to go and do good. Do not be fooled by the Pharisees who will tell you you can do good if it accidentally runs across your path. The Lord Jesus is obliterating the made-up laws of men, and he is teaching the true law of God on what the Sabbath is about. Must you do such good to others every hour of the Sabbath? No. Do some good for your own body. Do some good for your own family. Do some good for those who are you have authority over. But don't always be doing good for them. Do good for those who are withered by the curse of sin. And they are wearied by it. Why would you do such a thing? Because you know what Hosea 6, 6 means. I desire mercy. Mercy is the bedrock of all that God has done. Not simply getting us to jump through hoops. Praise God that we have a Sabbath keeper in Jesus Christ and a Sabbath maker in Jesus Christ, for he is Christ the merciful. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, we confess that we ourselves have sinned against the Sabbath, even at times in our attendance upon it before the eyes of men, our hearts have been murderous. We have been angry with our brother, angry with our sister. We have wished, even at times, that they weren't there when we got there. We are cut from the cloth from which the Pharisees have been cut. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that we are united to Jesus Christ and our total depravity has been broken. That we are now new creatures in Christ and we can confess and lament our sin and flee from it. 
Father, we do pray tonight upon the occasion of this text that we would learn from Jesus Christ how to read the scriptures, that we would not think that we are competent for them without prayer in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have thought so. Teach us, O oh Lord, again, that simply being able to read, simply knowing the address of this text or that, doesn't mean we know what it means. May we be taught of God, we pray, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we do pray that you would indeed set the mercies of God in our heart, filling up our heart, Oh, Lord, we pray that our errors would even be because of mercy, but deliver us from our errors. And lastly, Father God, tonight we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and the guardian and defending, the guardian and defending that he has performed for his church. In this text that continues in the church until the very end, and beyond, we thank you that he has stepped forward and has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with those who would condemn the guiltless. We thank you that it is Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who indeed justifies the condemned. In his name we find rest. In his work we find rest. In his resurrection we find rest. Oh, Lord, bring us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen.